Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hi, Chris. Good to talk again. As usual, lots to talk about today. We have the temporary eviction ban being lifted here in Ireland, creating massive political controversy, not surprisingly. Over the last 24 hours, we've had strong profitability results from the two main banks here. In fact, virtually the only two banks here at this stage, AIB and Bank of Ireland. Um, I think that warrants a little bit of discussion. Uh, Jay Powell was testifying before Congress yesterday, uh, said some interesting things about the US economy, about US interest rates from here, Warren's discussion. Next Wednesday, the 15th of March, we have the UK spring budget. Lots of suggestions being made from business about what Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, needs to do to try and boost the economic growth performance and potential of the UK economy. And I think that also ties into some interesting comments from a couple of parties about the future path of UK interest rates. We've had strong-ish German industrial production data out this morning, and this is consistent with the generally more upbeat tone we've seen in many economic data releases in Europe and elsewhere over recent weeks. Uh, There is an ongoing story about the impact that the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, is having on the relationship between the European Union and the United States. And a lot of that revolves around the $369 billion package of tax incentives for green measures that Biden included 
in that package. Uh, the Europeans are not happy. So if we get a chance, I'd like to give a little bit of perspective on that. And a final item that hopefully we'll have time to discuss today, the central bank published its latest forecast for the Irish economy. Um, I'd just like to give a quick overview of that. But starting with the temporary eviction ban, which, as I said, is going to be lifted at the end of the month, it has elicited a very strong reaction and a very negative reaction from some quarters. Um, and th- there's, there's, there's interesting perspectives on it from both sides of that equation. Basically, the, the decision within government to get rid of the eviction ban has been driven by this pressure that's coming from landlords who believe that stuff like the temporary eviction ban is accelerating the exodus of private landlords from the rental market. And indeed, there is evidence, strong evidence and statistical analysis to back up that assertion we are seeing and have been for the last few years a significant decline in the number of private landlords in the market. And of course, uh, that is creating supply problems. It's putting more and more onus on the so-called institutional investors to actually solve the deficit in the rental market. I'm always intrigued by the sort of political debate that goes on around landlords. Um, Landlords are generally demonised private sector landlords or private landlords are demonized, but even more so the institutional landlords are demonized. So a lot of policies have been put in place relating to the private landlords in the market, uh, such as this eviction ban, such as the rent control zones, such as the taxation treatment and the general regulatory environment that private landlords have got to adhere to. And Basically, private landlords are voting with their feet. So if they continue to leave the market, as I say, more and more pressure will come on the institutional landlords to address the deficit. Uh, But you can't have it both ways. Yeah, I agree, Jim, that you know the data far better than I about exits of landlords. And I will just add an anecdote to that data. I know a couple of people in Ireland who are um, landlords for various reasons over the years they've collected a property or two which they are currently renting out one person i know was um lucky family was hoping to leave the property to one of their children somebody else uh, had become an accidental landlord in various property shenanigans of recent years and they are now both selling up and the reason for it is precisely as you are saying is that they are very worried that should they ever run into difficulties with tenants they would not be able to get them out Uh, That's the only reason they're selling up, uh, as they say to me anyway. So if you want a functioning rental market, you shouldn't be doing things like this. Uh, That's the analytics. um, That's the economics of it in terms of how you should have a market operating. Of course, the emotional response to this, the the sight or the imagination uh, of families being cast out onto the street elicits a huge emotional response, which is just as valid as the analytical response. Uh, And like so many things in life, Jim, it depends through which lens you're going to look at this. Are you going to have the emotional response or are you going to have the the cold analytical response? You and I will say that you've got to have a rental market and to have a functioning rental market, you've got to have rules and regulations that are adhered to. And if you start interfering with market processes, there will be outcomes. And the outcome of this particular interference is that the market stops working. That's a general point. Often 
when politicians interfere in the functioning of markets, they start they stop to operate. This will continue to have the consequence. For as long as you do have a ban on evictions, I think people will be trying to exit. Uh, the th- the, of course, the thing I would say is that lifting an eviction ban in the middle of a housing crisis is going to produce the biggest emotional response of all and lead you to all sorts of attacks, emotional attacks, political attacks. So you're doing it at the wrong time if, if you are going to do it. So it's it, you can almost sympathise with the politicians, but in, in many ways they've created a rod for their own backs. I suspect they are in the classic no-win situation. The Attorney General, the legal advice that the AG gave government was that an extension of the eviction ban would require substantial evidence and legal and policy justification. And fears were expressed about the impact it would have on the long-term rental supply, um, the negative impact it would have on landlords. There is a view that it does represent a substantial impingement on property rights. Um, and, you know, you'd have to Which say... They're part of your constitution, aren't they, property rights? They are indeed. Absolutely. They are indeed. But, um, you know, the, the bottom line is if you impose these sorts of restrictions into a market that is already not functioning properly, it just increases the level of dysfunction. I would actually prefer to apply the sort of harder analytical approach to this because I just think the soft emotional approach isn't working either. You know, we we have a rental crisis and this eviction ban actually has arguably made that rental crisis worse. I mean, it is up to, there. I guess there are two types of people who rent properties. One are those people who pay rent themselves to rent properties. And then there is the property that is supplied by the state. And I think the two have become mixed up in the sense that the state is clearly failing to provide um, enough rental property for the types of renters that the state should look after and does look after. And more and more pressure is falling back on private landlords. And yet the state is stepping in and imposing all of these restrictions. And I say it's not just the eviction ban, it's the taxation treatment of the income. It's the ability to write off interest and other expenses against tax. It is the rental control zones or free zones that are in place. All And, and generally, as I said, the very high level of regulation that a private landlord has to go through to register with the Residential Tenancies Board. So bottom line is it's forcing people out. So I, I, I think the state's failure here is, is being pushed onto landlords. I'm reminded of something that the economist, the British economist Tim Harford, who writes regularly in the FT, he's Oxford-based, he said that one of the things that's gone wrong in the UK economy is a general point about government interference in all sorts of different things, and that various commissions and study groups and researchers for years have been saying various things about how you can solve the UK's economic problems in the round, but often they amount to government getting out of the way. And he said specifically, he said, what the government has done for monetary policy in the UK, handed over to technocrats, it should do for many other policy areas and stop interfering with the proper functioning of markets. That, of course, is something that I suspect both of us would applaud, but we've got to recognise political realities. And I'll wind you all the way back to a question I was going to ask you a couple of minutes ago, is that knowing that lifting the eviction ban is the right thing to do from a policy analytical perspective, 
but it's going to cost you votes. What would you as a politician do? You'd like to think that you would do the right thing that will ultimately help provide a long-term solution for this problem. But of course, uh, there there is this uh, conflict between knowledge, expertise and power. You know, applying your knowledge and your expertise to a problem would generally result in you not achieving or attaining power. So to attain power, you have to compromise on this sort of evidence-based approach to um, addressing policy issues. And that is the constant battle, I guess, between politics and policymaking. And um, strictly speaking, what you would require is a strong evidence-based policymaking to every policy decision. But politics seriously complicates that. And if you do not do the populist thing, the chances are you'll be kicked out of office and you lose power. Yeah. That Harford piece, which was in the FT and is also on his blog, you don't have to subscribe to the FT to get it, made the point that he thinks there are just so many areas of dysfunction in the UK economy that have actually been caused by politicians simply making the wrong decisions. Yeah. And I'm also reminded of that famous quote by Jean-Claude Juncker from years ago during the financial crisis when he said, well, we all know what the right thing to do is, but we don't know how to get elected if we do it. Uh, as you say, that sums it up very well. It does sum it up very well. Mm. Let's move on, Chris, Jim. Chris, moving moving on to uh, the the banking situation here. Um, you know, we saw after two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, the Irish banking system collapse in spectacular fashion. We saw the state having to step in to varying degrees to basically rescue the banking system because there was a correct and justifiable belief that without a functioning banking system, you would not have a functioning economy. So as a consequence, there was no choice other than to make sure that the banking system survived through various interventions. Bank of Ireland, I think, has been fully taken out of state control at this stage. The state's holding in AIB, which was much higher in the first place than it's holding in Bank of Ireland, but it is being gradually run down. But both banks, uh, it was necessary to restore the banks to profitability because you need a profitable banking system for a banking system to operate and to act as a, an intermediary between lenders, uh, sorry, between borrowers and depositors. I mean, that's what a banking system does effectively. And without a sufficient level of profit, you ain't going to be able to achieve that. But in the last 24 hours, as I say, we've seen strong profit results from AIB and from Bank of Ireland. And one of the key reasons for that, okay, the economic backdrop is decent and, you know, there's reasonable growth in lending. But the key driver, it would appear to me, is the fact that interest rates are rising and the interest margin that the banks are earning is rising. And um, I, I was thinking about it this morning, and I'm conflicted in this, to be honest, between my ideological viewpoint on many things and, you know, the the other viewpoint one can have on things which is not ideologically driven, I suppose. Um, I'm a bit conflicted because it strikes me, and similarly as the situation with the energy companies at the moment, the banks and the energy companies are benefiting from problems that have been created for the personal sector, for business, and in relation to rising interest rates and in relation to rising energy costs. So is this just basically, as is the case with the energy companies, 
Is it the case with the banks that this is just basically usury, that money is being taken from business and households and handed over to the banks and to the energy companies? Well, I think the problem that you've got in Ireland is not usury. I mean, that that is the lending of money for rates of interest. Uh, and as we know, certain parts of the world ban that outright. And there are various ways in which you can get around that. But the problem that you've got in Ireland, I think going back to our discussion about the functioning of markets, about whether or not you're going to take an analytical or an emotional response, I think that they both coincide in this case, in that your analysis and your emotions will, unlike the housing thing, point you in the same direction. As good economists, Jim, we believe in the forces of competition. And we believe that the, the, the interests of the consumer and the interests of the worker and the interests of the capitalist are all aligned when there is healthy competition throughout your economy and in sectors uh, like banking. The problem you've got in, in Ireland is you ain't got a competitive banking sector. It's essentially now an oligopoly. I had occasion to phone my Bank of Ireland account only yesterday with a credit card query, actually. And the first thing I would say is, God almighty, the customer service from, from that bank over the phone is just dreadful. You know, pressing different buttons, getting through to the wrong people. When I got through to the wrong people, they put me through again to the wrong people. Customer service, repeatedly, whenever I phone them, it's, it's something that I dread. It's something that I really, really don't want to do unless I have to. But when I do, it's always a dreadful dreadful experience it's appalling when i did phone them this is the point of making this story of the phone call uh, the uh, recorded message was all about push button one two three or four for all the multiple options all the usual stuff that we're familiar with but it began with if you are transferring from one of the banks that's shutting down in ireland we have a dedicated helpline for you and that message of course is about the, the, the disappearance of competition in the Irish banking sector, because for all sorts of reasons, people are, banks are pulling out, leaving the field essentially open to AIB and Bank of Ireland. Now, I know there are plenty of corporate bankers. Some of them are probably still my friends left in Ireland who say that they still lend to companies and they do all this, that and the other. But what essentially you've got is an oligopoly of two building societies. And their margins are now very high, amongst the highest in Europe. What is a bank's profit margin? Um, people find banking very mysterious and very difficult to understand, and they don't devote much time to thinking about it. I sympathize with that. I wish I didn't have to devote much time thinking about it. But I do know how banks make their money, and in particular from something called the net interest margin. Please don't let your eyes glaze over. Don't go make a cup of tea. But this is like the profit margin of your local shop or any business that in terms of the, the stuff that it has to buy in, then what it does to that stuff, the price that it sells it at. The difference between buying and selling prices for any business is the profit margin, and banking is no different. And the thing that's really, really important, the thing that drives an awful lot of banks' profits are the interest rates that it pays to borrow money, because nearly all of the money that it lends out to you as a mortgage holder or as somebody that wants to buy a car or a business that wants to buy a factory, all of that money is borrowed from somebody. A tiny amount of it is shareholder money, but it, that, that, that's insignificant. And so the bank pays interest to borrow that money that it then lends to you. And the rate at which it lends to you is always in excess of the rate that it has to borrow. That's its profit margin. And that margin, the difference between the two in Ireland, is way too big frankly, and it would be smaller if there were more banks and there's not enough competition. So the market, again, it's different 
dysfunction to the housing problem, completely different actually, but it is market dysfunction. And the banks are super profitable. They shouldn't be. Somebody should do something about it. I, my only hope is, I don't think the regulator or the government or any official agency is going to do anything about it. My only hope is that uh, the banks ultimately will be disintermediated the way in which travel agents and newspapers and all those other businesses have been done away with, if you like. Their profits have been done away with by the existence of the internet. And the growth of fintech, the growth of banks like Revolut and many other startups that are coming on stream now, uh, I've noticed that on our podcast, one startup I've never heard of is now advertising itself, um, certainly here in the UK. I don't know whether it's operating in, in Ireland. Uh, but the, hopefully these banks will represent the competition. These startup internet fintech banks will represent the competition to the high street banks that is so sorely needed in Ireland and in other places as well. We're not there yet. They, they, these banks are not big enough. They're not ubiquitous enough. And they, they're not in the lending game enough yet. But this is my hope that eventually the practices of the uh, uncompetitive high street banks will be disintermediated. It's a hope rather than an expectation. But yeah, these banks are super profitable because they um, are able to hide profit margins increases. The behavior of the banks is such that forever, Throughout history, whenever interest rates go up, they always increase their profit margins and um, they love a rising interest rate environment and they hate a falling interest rate environment. It has been tough for them in the zero interest rate world that we've lived in, but now they're making out like bandits. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Chris, just uh, if I may play devil's advocate, uh, back in the late 90s and into the 2000s, we had extreme competition in the Irish banking market. Um, I remember when Bank of Scotland, for example, entered the mortgage market back in 98, 99. I think average mortgage rates fell 1.5% overnight because of competition. And of course, that competition uh, intensified and ultimately resulted in the collapse in the banking system. So we had an example of too much competition. Uh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. No, absolutely not, Jim. On this one, I'm going to disagree with you. What you had in Ireland was a, so competi playing devil's advocate, okay. a competitive banking environment, tech, great, gold star, and an absolutely useless regulator. Exactly. Uh, I was just, that was the point I was going to make, actually. You need the two. Yeah, you need, you need the two, the two. exactly. Yeah. 
that's where I was going, Chris. Okay, I believe you. Do. Um, I believe. I said you. I, I said I was acting uh, devil's advocate there, but I was describing what competition resulted, and the reason why competition created market failure was because it wasn't regulated. Exactly, uh, you need regulation. Absolutely, I agree with John that Chris across the water across the Atlantic, uh, Jay Powell testifying before Congress yesterday, talking about the need for U.S. interest rates to go higher and to remain higher for longer. How did you analyze what he was saying? Well, I was surprised that anybody was surprised. It's something that's been coming for a while. Other Fed governors and indeed central bankers on this side of the water have been saying similar things for some time. The data that it's been coming out had been consistent with what he eventually said yesterday. And if you go back to what Powell has said previously, he said, I'm going to watch the data. And the data has said, well, if Jay Powell is watching me, um, I'm telling him that interest rates aren't going up high enough and interest rate expectations aren't high enough. So I'm surprised that the equity market fell only yesterday. I'm not surprised that it fell. As I said in a previous podcast, I would have thought that the incoming data, because it pointed to what Powell was about to say about interest rates, should have sent the equity market lower. And I think that it's still of a, a bit of a puzzle to me why the equity market hasn't gone down even more than it has, because it's produced financial market reactions everywhere. Um, we've had two-year interest rates. This gets a bit technical when we talk about different periodicities of interest rates, but the key two-year rate is now at a multi-year high. To get even more technical, there's something called the yield curve, which is the difference between different periodic interest rates. So, for example, the difference between two-year interest rates and 10-year interest rates is now at an extreme level that we haven't seen for many, many years. And in the jargon, it's inverted. Now, don't worry too much about what an inverted yield curve actually is. The message is that inverted yield curves usually signal a, an impending recession. It's not a perfect indicator, but historically, it's a very good one. And the US yield curve now is signaling a recession is due. Now, one of the interesting things about the US economy is that uh, a new piece of jargon has emerged, Jim. Have you heard the phrase, the Godot economy? No. Well, the Godot economy takes its name from the play, Waiting for Godot. It's waiting for Godot, yeah. And we're waiting for the recession. And it just refuses to turn up. One of the things that Powell said yesterday, one of the many things that were really interesting, was an, a, a reference to just maybe all of that good economic data that the markets have noticed, that he's noticed, that we've been talking about since December, may have been a head fake. Not all of it. Some of it is undoubtedly real. The economy is in definitely better shape than everybody thought it was going to be. But it has been a very mild winter in most of the United States and in Europe, of course. And that has links to everything else. The, the gas price is lower because of that, partly because of that. But maybe part of this good economic story is the seasonal adjustment that we make to our data, that the good weather has meant that things have been done that wouldn't normally have been done in the economy, and that this will wash through. It's a, it's a theory. I've seen it expressed before, not just by Jay Powell. We're going to find out. Um, we're going into a very heavy data period now, starting on Friday with the all-important impo all employment report. In the jargon, it's the non-farm payroll. As soon as that starts to weaken, that's the thing that everybody is looking for because that's the thing that keeps on coming in stronger every single time than expected, showing a very, very tight labor market. So a lot of economists have changed their interest rate forecasts for the next Fed meeting, going from a quarter point rise to a half point rise. The market is putting up its expectations for the peak in US interest rates. And so 
this story about interest rate expectations ratcheting up day by day continues. I remain surprised that the equity market, the stock market, has been so resilient in the face of that. And I wonder whether or not it's due for a bad period. But I have to respect the fact that the stock market has been resilient and try to, in a way, construct a narrative for why that might be the case. And as I said to you before, Jim, I think that it might just well be that uh, the market is being mature about this, the stock market, and saying that this is just a return to normal. Zero interest rates were because we had an economic crisis, four, five, maybe even 6% interest rates in the United States is a return to the levels that we remember from our youth, Jim. And we could call that normal. An awful lot of people younger than us wouldn't, but we would. And so maybe the restoration of normality is what the stock market is flirting with as a concept. I don't know. But if you if you wanted to pin me to the wall and say, how would I trade the stock market over the next short term? I would be on the short side. I would expect it to more likely to go down than up. That said, I do think that it is a classic waterbed market, to use another piece of ugly market jargon. And I think that we are just going to be going up and down for the foreseeable future in the way that we have done this year, just oscillating around the the, the all-important S&P 500 has been oscillating around the 4,000 level, going up a bit, going down a bit without actually going anywhere. And I think that's likely to continue. So, yeah, we're going to get higher interest rates, stronger dollar. Stock market on the weak side would be my guess until until the US economy shows signs of slowing down. But because we've flirted with the idea of the US economy slowing down through the autumn of last year, we kind of know what happens then. Uh, Interest rate expectations start to soften, the dollar goes down, the stock market goes up. And I think there's an awful lot of people out there waiting for that event as well. I'm in danger of meeting myself coming backwards, so I'll shut up there. Yeah, okay, Chris. Moving back to Europe, uh, we had German industrial production this morning up 3.5%, which was the strongest rate of growth in two and a half years. Um, retail sales, though, Jim. Jeez, uh, Chris, will you leave me finish, okay? All right. That, that follows a decline of 2.4% in industrial production, production in December. So there was a sort of a base effect. Uh, retail sales did fall by 0.1%. But uh, generally, th- we're seeing you know, economic data on the euro side a little bit stronger. And that will continue to convince the European Central Bank, as Philip Lane was saying in Dublin earlier this week, that rates are going up a half percent um, on March 16th, next uh, Thursday week, Thursday of next week, excuse me, and that another half percent will probably be seen at the the May meeting and it may not stop there. So this data story, continues to back up central bankers in terms of their interest rate intentions at this juncture. And you talk about the US labor market. I think labor market performance is crucial to how central bankers are seeing the world at the moment because underlying inflation, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, uh, is still at worryingly high levels from central bankers. And one of the reasons for that is that service sector inflation is very strong, which in turn is being driven by tight labor markets and upward pressure on wages. So as long as labor markets remain strong and the unemployment rate in the euro area at 6.7%, uh, 3.3% in the United States, uh, as long as those labor markets remain tight, I think central bankers will continue to tighten rates. So uh, it's, it's, it's an evolving story, but central bankers definitely engaged in data watching. A couple of um, interesting pieces have come out 
of the United Kingdom in recent days. Um, one of the Monetary Policy Committee members arguing that rates should remain at 4% for the foreseeable future, that no further increases warranted. And I think that does mirror something that a former Bank of England official, Andy Haldane, I think he's former, um, said at the weekend about pretty much expressing the same sort of view. Um, and next Wednesday, that's the 15th of March, we have Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, presenting the spring budget and a lot of pressure coming to bear on him to introduce business-friendly measures to try and boost economic growth and activity and all sorts of tax reliefs are being suggested for business to try and address something that actually you have been ranting on about for a long time, and that is the lack of growth in the United Kingdom and the consequences of that lack of growth in terms of the quality of public services and the sort of fiscal dilemma that Quasi Quartang and Liz Trust found themselves in last October. So business recognises that something needs to be done. I guess it remains to be seen if Jeremy Hunt and the Conservative government will actually back up all of that with concrete measures. Jim, I'd like to read out about something that I wrote in uh, on our Substack site. It's the quote from Tim Harford that I was um, alluding to earlier on. It says that you shouldn't be starting from here. There are two things, that, two quotes I want to make. This, these are quotes that I'm pulling out of a Substack piece that I wrote for our website the other day. And it, it looks at it's Martin Wolf from the FT talking about the UK's economic problem. It turns out that the UK has two regional problems, not one. And as a result, a huge national problem too. The long-standing problem, the one that you and I have been talking about for ages, is the relative weakness of areas outside London and the southeast. Since the financial crisis, we see a new one, however, namely the slowdown of these previously dynamic regions. Regional inequality hasn't become worse since 2007, yet this is not because of levelling up. The country is suffering something much worse than rising regional inequality, national stagnation with even the former growth engines spluttering. Harford, the guy that I quoted earlier on, goes on with a different refrain on a similar theme. It is easy to produce a list of sensible ways forward. Modernise taxes to raise more revenue with fewer distortions. Improve relations with the EU. Streamline UK-EU trade, especially in services. Liberalise planning rules to create jobs and cheaper, better homes. But all policy wonks, and most politicians know this, nothing ever happens. When researching this, he said, I found a video of an LSE, London School of Economics Commission Chair, John Van Rienen, in what he described what we need to do over the next, next 50 years. It seemed an impossibly daunting timescale. Then I realised the video had been posted almost exactly 10 years ago. We could have started then. We didn't. We didn't. We've gone backwards. We could at least start now. I don't expect Jeremy Hunt to start now next uh, next week. And I think these problems uh, require a change of government. That's my six months worth, Jim. I think we'll get some gimmicky tax changes. Um, but watch this space. I will tell you what I think about the budget after I've seen it. Chris, I just wrap up on the central bank's latest uh, forecast for the Irish economy today. Um, modified domestic demand, that is that 
measure of demand that tries to strip out the um, nebulous multinational activity stuff. Um, it increased by 8.2% last year. It is forecast at 3.1% this year, 2.9% next year, and 2.6% in 2025. So that sort of growth in modified domestic demand would describe a reasonably healthy domestic Irish economy. Um, Inflation forecast to moderate to 5% on average this year. And given that the headline rate at the moment is running at 7.8%, you know, that would signify to get a 5% average for the year, that would signify that the headline rate has to fall to probably 3 to 4% by the end of the year. A lot of that will be contingent on energy and food prices. Anything else there yet? The unemployment rate is expected to average 4.4% this year and next year. So from a business perspective, it does suggest that the recruitment and retention of workers will remain a significant challenge for many businesses, as is the case at the moment. And the final piece is that average disposable incomes forecast to grow by 2.1% this year, 2.3% next year. So basically, the central bank's prognostications for the Irish economy are suggesting that the next couple of years actually will be okay. And I hope that turns out to be the case. Chris, I wanted to talk about the IRA, um, that is Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and the impact it's having on US-EU relationships. Uh, But I think we will return to that in the next podcast, if we may. So I'd like to leave it there. Anything to add? Thanks, Jim. Uh, No, just to mention, we did promise a podcast with Chris Gray last week that for all sorts of strange reasons had to be postponed, but we will be doing it towards the end of this week. So something for us both, and hopefully all our listeners to look forward to. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.